Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It was a delight to be with so many of you on uh, Friday night. Was well, Friday, right? <laughs> I'm losing my mind. Um, yeah, I know. I'm just thinking. I'm just waiting for somebody to say, you know, you have no idea. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, at least some some days I actually think I do have an idea. Um, but it was fun to be with you, um, as always, and um, I echo Jason's thanks of your incredible uh, generosity, your gift uh, to, to our family. Thank you for that so much. Um, we're deeply moved. Um, speaking of memory, I was trying to, Molly, do you know, have I, this, did I just finished six years to doing this? Is that right? Does anybody know? <laughs> I think, I think I started in January 2012, so I think I just, doesn't seem that's possible, I think that's right. So, yeah, I know, I need to ask Wayne, yeah. Um, where's our class memory when we need it? I could be wrong, I, I've been wrong so many times. It, it's at least five, but I think it's six. I think I started in January 2012, so come January, yeah. Okay. I think I started January 2012, so just finishing up. Um, what what a what a blessing you all have been to me. Um, part of the reason I can't remember because I mean it's just been such fun. Um, and so so thank you for uh, I enduring um, to the end. <laughs> and uh, so many times you have. Uh, have been long-suffering with the, the series that will not end. Um, <laughs> although, as I, as I was trying to remember this morning, you'll recall that when I first did this, um, I was just doing the Sunday school quarterly, right, which is what had been done, and I just thought, I'm not going to change anything. And we did that for several years, right, until finally people said, could we ditch the quarterly? And, and who is that we well, I, there was one prominent voice. Um, I can't, you know, because my memory's going, I could be wrong about who it was, but I have some vague recollection that uh, one person, um, she wasn't the only one, but uh, she, uh, at, at least in this one instance, she got her way. <laughs> Always. Yeah. So, anyway, thank you for what I think is six years of a lot of fun, and um, and it continues to be a, a blessing to be with you. We are in the second Sunday of Advent, and we're uh, trying to finish up the second article of the Creed. The Apostles' Creed. I recall the Apostles' Creed has uh, sort of three articles. It's Trinitarian, so there's a really short article about God the Father. The longest article, which is the one that we've been sojourning in for quite some time, is about Jesus the Son. And then the last article um, is about the Spirit and the Christian life. Um, 
And so today we're trying, we, we sort of split up uh, three phrases that in a perfect world where you could have Sunday school for like six hours, that would be a perfect world. Um, see how far we are away from perfection? Uh, yes. Um, we wouldn't have broken those, uh, the, the, those three phrases, um, or really four. And so you recall over the last couple of weeks we've talked about uh, Jesus uh, rising from the dead. Ascent, last week was ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And today, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Okay, from there, from thence, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And you might think, um, who, who wants to talk about judgment uh, at Christmas time? Right? I mean, that sounds like a down. This is supposed to be like joy to the world, you know, ring the bells, you know. Um, yeah, what's that about? Um, well, part of, the, part of the challenge, of course, is that we've, just got Advent pretty much wrong, <laughs> right? I mean, we started the new year, and what's really remarkable about Advent in the church year is it's, while it is in some ways uh, this, this season of preparation um, for Christmas, that's primarily what we've turned it into. Um, it really is the church beginning every church year by beginning at the end, which seems really weird. Like, why would you, I mean, when you begin something, you should begin at the beginning. But no, the church year begins at the end. And that's really important, uh, particularly in a society that teaches us to, you know, in many ways, live in the present. And there's, there's a lot to be said for living in the present. Um, people say, you know, just leave the past behind. The future will take care of itself. And there's some wisdom in that. Um, but there's that, it's only half-truth, right? And the problem is if you take a half-truth and make it the whole truth, you get an untruth, okay? Uh, and that half-truth is, it's true. Uh, there are some things about the past that we should leave behind, and there's some things about the future that we have no control over. But the truth of the matter is that as human beings, we live between or from memory and anticipation. Our lives are sort of the intersection of memory and anticipation. The past is never just past, right? If the past were simply past, we wouldn't be here today, right? We, we are living, embodied, breathing examples of what the past has brought into the present, right? Um, had the past just remained past, we wouldn't be here. No, the past has been brought along into the present. And the future is never just future, right? Uh, all of you... I mean, huge parts of your life, huge parts of my life have been an attempt to live into some imagined future. Yes? So we call goals. Right? Have you never had a goal? Have you never had something that you, you find yourself striving for? Of course you have. Of course you have. 
So the future is never just future. The future is also present. Okay? The future is present. So the past is never past. There's a sort of the past present. There's sort of the future present. So we live at the intersection of the past present and the future present. You didn't think you were coming to this something this complicated this morning. You said, I just wanted I just want to talk about like Christmas. But this this is the Christian life. And what's really important is that we are living from this huge, immense, rich Christian history and Jewish history, which informs who we understand ourselves to be. We would not understand ourselves as Christians today if the past had remained the past. Right? But it's also that God has given us a glimpse, revealed a glimpse of what the future is and because we, as the people of God, are called to live as a kind of embodied anticipation to the world of where God is taking all of creation, that future has broken into the present, most preeminently in Jesus Christ. But also, we're supposed to be a kind of signpost to the future. right? So we're trying to live into God's future. That's part of our identity. That's part of our identity, is living into a particular future. And we have gotten a glimpse of this future, even in the creed. Now, we can't say, of course, all we want to say today about this phrase, and thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. But it is the one place, as we mentioned last week, where the second article of the creed turns to the future. Last week, the creed turned to the present, right? We talked about Jesus ascended into heaven, that was past, sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That's present. That's the first time in the second article of Creed it says anything about what Jesus is doing right now. And thence, okay, and from then, he will come to judge the living and the dead. So in, that, in those last three phrases of, the, of that second article of the Creed, you have past, present, and future all together in this one person, Jesus Christ. And we talked last week about how God's desire is, is to bring together heaven and earth. Right? To bring together heaven and earth. And that, that, was, that was the point of the temple. This is the point, at one, once you begin to see how often we've talked about Jesus being fully God and fully human, you see, in the incarnation that we're celebrating at Christmas time itself, in this one person, Jesus Christ, we have heaven and earth wed in his very being. And then when Jesus ascends to heaven, as we said last week, that Jesus takes his full humanity into the life of God. Right? And so... God and humanity have themselves been joined together in the very person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus sits right now at the right hand of God, the place of authority, and he bears his humanity. Humanity has been brought into the life of God in a way that it hadn't been. Right? So today, we come to this, what sounds like, really, really dire, dark news, like judgment. And all of a sudden, if you're like me, it's like, I, 
I went to Italy last summer, first time sat in the Sistine Chapel. If you've been there, you know Michelangelo's sort of stunning um, whole one end of the Sistine Chapel is a picture of judgment. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a sobering, a very sobering uh, depiction. Um, but maybe, um, and, and I think that's, it's that kind of image um, that's sort of, if you're like me, that, that, that we sort of have, and, and sort of explains our aversion, maybe, for some of us, uh, to talking about uh, this part of the creed. It'd be much easier just to kind of run along to the next phrase. That's why I thought we needed to kind of linger here, because I think we've got something to, to learn here. Um, Jesus is, is doing what uh, he, he's been assigned. This is part of Jesus' exaltation. We said that Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, his sitting at the right hand of the Father, and actually his coming to judge the living and the dead, all of that is part of Jesus' exaltation. It's part of God's vindication. It's part of God saying yes to who Jesus was. Now, in the Old Testament... Uh, the Jews were waiting for the day of the Lord, right? the day when God, the judge, would set all things right. And this was a day that they longed for. Right? I mean, think about the history of the Jews. They, they have, they've had a tough history. They have lived more times than not uh, under the thumb of one ruler or another. And how many times have we, in the Psalms, do you hear this refrain, O oh Lord, 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 how long? How, how long must, must we endure this? They were waiting for the day when God would set all things right, which is what a judge does, right? Am I right about that? That's what a judge is supposed to do. Sometimes. That's what, the that's what a judge is supposed to do, is to set things right. My hunch is at least once in your life, you have longed for things to be set right in your own life. And certainly, when we look around the world, I mean, who cannot find themselves, whose heart that is actually still anything other than stony cold cannot long for the day when God will set things right. This is good news, right? And, and particularly if your life has been marked by injustice, how can you not long for the day when God will make things right? So what's new in the life of Jesus isn't this understanding that God, the Jews always knew, and Jesus as a good Jew knew that God was going to set things right. What's remarkable about Scripture and what's remarkable about the creed here is that Jesus is the one who's given the authority to be the judge who will set things right. Right? 
This is part of the authority that's been granted to him. It's part of his exaltation. He's been exalted to be the one who will judge. And that's really, really important because when we come to the danger of doing this one phrase by itself is that we might think, we might easily just take out the phrase about judgment and just start letting our, uh, our minds sort of run along, you know, medieval Michelangelo kind of lines and think that this is just about, you know, sort of separating things out. But the one who is judging is the one who we've just learned about for the last what seems like five years, right? Uh, we're going through the creed. This one, right, the Messiah who's been appointed by God to, to be the one who brings about makes it possible for heaven and earth to be joined, who brings about God's, God's long-desired restoration and redemption of all of creation. This is God's deep longing. God's, God desires that things be made right, too, that we be brought back into full fellowship with God. And so the one who has been anointed and appointed to do that is the one who is the judge. That's good news, right? This is good. This is not just anyone who is the judge, right? It's not like God just, you know, put the divine hand into, you know, uh, and, and pulled out a, a hand, uh, pulled out a name. Uh, Linda's the judge. Uh, <laughs> That would be a different thing, right? If I were the judge, it would be a different thing. But the one who's already revealed God's heart is the judge, right? The one who has preeminently revealed God's love for all of creation and the links to which God will go to to bring us back to God. That is the one who is the judge. This is, this is good news. Okay? This is good news. But too often we, we, we forget who, who it is that's the judge. Right? And we trust because God is the judge that God will be both merciful and just both merciful and just. And that's, that's what all of us want, I think. A merciful and just judge. And so, what's surprising, it's not surprising to us maybe because we've heard it all our lives, what would have been surprising to first century uh, Jews and to Christians in the, coming, in the coming centuries was that Jesus has been assigned this role to be the judge of the living and the dead. Or if you've been around long enough, and at least a few of you have, um, you remember learning the Apostles' Creed as he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Right? And I grew up as a sprinter in track, and I always thought like, What's God, God's got against fast people? <laughs> right? 
Um, no, but you know, that's why we changed it to living, because we don't use the word quick anymore, anymore for the living. Uh, but that's, yeah, so God's going to judge the living and the dead. Right? Um, and so, and this is something that we anticipate. And we long for. And my hunch is, and this is one of my shower thoughts today, and I'll throw it in here. Um, I wondered if I find myself, maybe put it another way, my hunch is there's probably a correlation between how much your life has been, uh, how, how often you've been the subject of injustice and how much you long for God to come. Does that make sense? And, if, and I have to admit, when I was in the shower this morning, I was thinking, I'm not sure that I've longed for that that much. And I have to admit, I'm not sure that I can point to that many places in my life where I have been the subject of injustice. I'm not making much of that, I'm just noting it, right? Um, but there are lots of people in the world, both today and across history, who have longed for the coming of Jesus to set things right. In fact, one of the earliest prayers we have in the New Testament is Maranatha, which means, come Lord, right? Come Lord. Um, and most of us, if you're like me, it's like, I don't know that I want. There are days I'm not sure I want the Lord to come, <laughs> right? And I'm trying to think about what that says about me, right? Does that reveal something about me? I'm sure it's complicated, but that's one of the things I was thinking about this morning. So Jesus has come to judge the living and the dead. And, and that's, that's good news. If we feel like it's a threat, we need to be reminded that it's Jesus who is coming. And we also we need to remember God's heart. I mean, Scripture's... Scripture is pretty clear. You have passages in, in the epistles of Peter and Timothy where it's clear that God's desire, God doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to know God. That's God's deepest desire. And so that should remind us. I mean, at times, I think, now, I don't think anyone taught me this explicitly. But I think at times, I mean, sometimes we mentioned this before, sometimes you learn as much by what you're not told as by what you are told, right? And sometimes I got the impression um, that Christians worshipped and served uh, a certain kind of, I'm just looking for you to make a mistake kind of God, right? Um, and I think here's a good example of where we sometimes create God in our image rather than being reminded that we're created in God's image right because too many times in my life we, talk, we talked last week about how 
Jesus being ascended into heaven and, and somehow revealing the glory of God and that somehow we're called by the, the power of the Spirit to be, be changed from one degree of glory into another. And I encourage you, and I encouraged myself last week, uh, to be asked to be given eyes to see the glory in our brothers and sisters. And this was another thought I had. I had a lot of shower thoughts this week. <laughs> yeah. Can tell it was finals week. Spent extra time in the shower. <clears throat> Think about the people in your life. I hope you don't have too many. I probably have too many. Uh, think about the people in your life for whom, when you think of them, the first and maybe only thing you can think about are their weaknesses or the things that they do or have done that just drive you crazy. <coughs> right? And when you're with them, or when I'm with them, I find myself just looking for them to do something that I can criticize, that I, that I find fault with. I have people like that in my life, I'm not proud to say that, but I have people in my life for, for whom I find it difficult because of my heart to see God's glory in them. And sometimes I think we think God being that way. Right? That every time God sees me, what God primarily sees, what God's focused on are my frailties, my weaknesses, my rebellion even. I don't pretend to say that God doesn't see that. But if it's true that God's deepest desire, that God's desire is that none should perish, and the whole gospel is the links to which God has gone and is going to restore us to God's life into, into communion with God, then it seems to me we have to be reminded that you know, God is a God of grace and mercy. God is a God of love. And so God, God is, when God sees us, God's not just waiting for me or for you to make the next mistake. And maybe we shouldn't see each other that way. And so we need to, the, another way of saying this is this notion that God is coming in the person of Jesus to judge the living and the dead. That this is good news. This is, in some ways, consolation that God is going to set all things right. I mean, because God sees us differently. We want to say, right? The church has tried to say that because of Christ, God sees us differently. Because Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, that God has taken up into God's very life our humanity, in Jesus' humanity, that God sees us differently. Those of us who trust in Jesus and the way of Jesus. I mean, think of that great passage in, in Romans 8, right? This is Paul reflecting on 
this great truth that if if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? This is verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? And he's just talked about our being made righteous through Jesus. Right? What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Right? And then he goes on to talk about all these things that cannot separate us. Which says that we ultimately need not fear God's impending judgment at one level because of who God is and who God has revealed God to be. So that's the one thing to hold on to and to hold on above all else. But we also have to say, and you know, in so many things in the Christian life, you have to hold two things together. Even though they're not equal, they're still two things. And that is, there, there is warning here. Okay, there is warning. And the, and the, the warning comes from, from this. As much as God desires that none should perish, God is a God of love. Which means that God doesn't coerce. Right? You can't coerce love. God, God is hoping, God desires for us to respond to God's love by receiving that love and allowing it to transform us through the power of the Spirit. Right? That's God's desire. But God can't force someone to love God any more than you can force somebody to love you. Try it sometime. You can't do it. Right? You can love that person. You can try to woo them. You can try to somehow you know, do everything you can to elicit love. But you can't coerce it. And so the, the, the deep sadness if not the terror, is that God gives us the freedom to reject God's love. God doesn't desire that. God does not desire that. But if God coerced us into loving, it wouldn't be love. right? If I could coerce you to love me, that would be something other than love. Love has to be freely given. And this is the great risk that God takes because of love. Right? This is not contrary to God's love. This is because of God's love. And so while we, with God, are right to hope that none will reject God's love, there remains the possibility that we can. Right? That we can.
And I think one way to think about this is, is this, that because in the face of Jesus we see our full humanity, we've talked about that, that Jesus doesn't reveal only what it means to be God. Jesus also reveals what it means to be fully human. And God is trying through the Spirit to transform us into our full humanity. And the more we say yes to the work of the Spirit in our lives, and that transforming work, the more that we become fully human. But it's also possible to reject God's initiative. And, and in doing so, to make ourselves less and less human. In fact, I think it's possible. I think it's possible that we can so, we can so refuse, a person can so refuse to say, I want nothing to do with God's love, God's initiative, I want nothing to do with God's transformation of my life. I think it's possible for us to come to the point, ultimately, where maybe we are not even any longer image bearers of God. Right? We bear the image of God. And God's trying to restore that image, which we have to face. But I think it's possible for a person, and, and, and this is the horror Right? This is the horror of, of judgment, is that someone would completely refuse, willingly refuse. And there may come a time, as C.S. Lewis says, where God might say, God might say to a, a person, your will be done. Right? I mean, we pray in the Lord's Prayer that, that, that God's will would be done. But God, won't, God will not force us to accept God's will. And there are times in Scripture where we see God's judgment coming precisely that way, where God allows us to have what we will. Right. You know, in some in some readings of the Old Testament and Israel's desire to have a king. Right? God says, look, you're going to rue the day. You're going to regret this. Right? They're going to they're conscript your sons, send them off to war. You're going to enter in all these wars. A lot of your sons are not coming back. You're going to wish you never asked for this, but guess what? Your will be done. You want kings? Have them. Okay. And that was a form of judgment. Okay? That was a form of judgment by letting the people of God have what they wanted. This is what judgment is about. It's, it's, it's hard. But th these are not two sides, right? I mean, I think it's in important to say th these are not equally balanced. It's not as though, you know, God desires one side. God doesn't desire any to be lost. But given the kind of God that God has revealed to be, ultimately God will let us 
God will let our will be done. And so if we participate in defacing our own humanity, such to the point, and again, I think this is, it is it's horrible to imagine that, that I might not any longer be capable of bearing the image of God. I think that may be, you know, when Scripture talks about the sort of unforgivable sin of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, my reading is that's precisely what it is. It's refusing, absolutely refusing the work of the Spirit in our lives. It says, it says I want nothing to do with your transforming work in my life. I will have nothing to do with that. And I think God may let us have our way, even though that's not God's desire. Couldn't be further from God's desire. But God, being a God of love, will let us have our way. And so that warning is, is there, right? That warning is there. And so we, we need to be reminded during this second Sunday of Advent where, as much as we don't like to think about it, Advent is about preparing for the second coming of... We start by looking into the future of Jesus' return as we celebrate Jesus' first coming. And Scripture is clear that he won't come the same way that he came before. He came pretty much incognito the first time. Right? Most people didn't know anything had happened. Right? Uh, most people didn't know God had come. It's pretty clear from Scripture that Jesus is not coming incognito next time. And for those of us who have, by God's grace, it needs to be clear, it's not because we're better people, right? But those of us, by God's grace, have, have welcomed and continue to welcome Jesus and the way of Jesus and the work of the Spirit in our lives. Those of us who welcome, even though we fail, those of us who continue to desire that God transform us, I think can welcome and can pray, Maranatha, come. We can be confident, as Paul was confident, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We need not fear this judge. This judge is coming to make all things right. But there is this warning. And it, it's a warning for all of us. Not to presume, right? Not to presume upon God's grace that you and I are called to continue to be open, lest, man, lest any of us, right, and lest any of us find ourselves on a different path. Last week we talked about one degree of glory to another and said, you know, if you change your direction one degree, you know, 500 miles down the road, you're in a very different place. And God's changing us almost imperceptibly. But the same thing can go the other direction, that same process of becoming less than human. You know, no one wakes up one day and says, I just think I'll, be, I'll just give up being human. It comes in one degree at a time, probably. 
until you wake up and we've, we've lost our humanity. And so that's an important warning. It's sobering. Um, but it shouldn't, that sobering shouldn't somehow, in some way, uh, overpower God's desire and God's work in Jesus. So I'm hoping that we can, this Advent, pray with confidence. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Jesus, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, who's coming to judge the living and the dead. Come, make all things right. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are humbled in this season of Advent to be reminded that you have come in the person of Jesus, that you have begun this grand restoration project and that you will bring it to fruition and will come to bring justice and mercy and make all things right. We give you thanks for making us righteous in and through Jesus. We confess we don't always understand what that means, and yet you've promised us that you have. And so may we live in confidence, may we live into your love, may we desire what you desire, that we be made more fully into our full humanity. And protect us by your spirit from any inclination we may have to, to go a different road, to deface our humanity or deface the humanity of other people. We live in a broken world, O oh God, and we, we know we are not yet what you want us to be. And so we pray for your spirit to be at work during this Advent. May we pray with confidence. Maranatha, Lord, come. We pray this through the one who is coming to judge the living and the dead, even Jesus Christ. Can we ask a quick question? As long as I don't have to answer it.